Welcome to Single Mom Stories with Kelly Travis, a show that brings you stories and conversations about life as a single mom, the mess and the beauty and everything in between. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of Single Mom Stories. I am your host, Kelly Travis, and I am so glad to be back. Listen, I have a wonderful interview to share with you. Before we dive in, I want to let you know the plans and about some upcoming episodes for this podcast. I am going to be bringing out new episodes every other week, just through the summer due to my schedule and just a lot going on. That said, I'm really excited because I'm going to begin sharing an expert with you at the beginning of every month. Today's will be our first. And this expert works with parents or with children in some capacity. And I believe that as part of this podcast, I want to be able to provide resources and support as you navigate being a parent and or being a single parent, either way, right? Doesn't matter. These resources are for anybody who has a child or is responsible for a child, has one in their life. So today is our first, and I'm very excited to share her with you. In fact, I had her as a guest on my other podcast, She Doesn't Settle. So it's a little bit different conversation for this one. And let me tell you, I've already had a lengthy conversation with her And this one was an even deeper dive, and I had major ahas as a parent myself. So let me tell you about her. Her name is Abigail Gimpel. She is a college lecturer, practitioner in private practice, parent educator, and author of Hyperhealing. She has been married for 20 happy, glorious years and is a mother of six beautiful children. She began her career as a special education teacher in an inclusion classroom with children of all ability levels, unique gifts, and challenges. She loved her students, all of them. But the most intriguing were the students with, quote-unquote, special energy, the ones who were trying to drink from a waterfall instead of a glass. I love that. The ones who dreamed all day but then said something that no one else thought of. The ones whose engines ran on instant gratification and had not developed habits and routines to focus their explosive energy. They were creative, funny, out of the box, and struggling. They had trouble with follow-through, organization, social skills, routine, and emotional regulation. It was time to fill their toolkit with strong skills and habits. So, Abigail developed an intervention program full of novelty, discovery, structure, responsibility, routine, and faith in each child's ability. And as a result, her special energy kids began to flourish. That was phase one of her career. As part of the second phase, she actually began receiving ADHD diagnoses one after the next with her own children. She was told by neurologists, that her children had a chronic brain disorder, which could only be cured or managed through the use of stimulant medication. And she decided to dig even deeper. So as a result, we have all of Abigail's work. And she is currently in the process of writing her second book, which is so exciting. So I'm going to stop talking because I don't want to give too much away. But if you're a parent, if you are 
a family member of a parent, if you have children in your life, if you're a teacher, I mean, if you work with kids, this conversation is so important. So please, I'm going to stop talking, listen in on this conversation, and let me know what you think. Here's Abigail Gimpel. Well, Abigail Gimpel, I am so excited to have you back. Different podcasts, but very similar conversation. Welcome to the Single Mom Stories podcast. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's super fun to be meeting you again. I so enjoyed our last conversation. Yes. So let's do what we did last time and really dive into who you are and how you got to this place and the work that you do today. Sure. So I'm a New Yorker, mom of six remarkable kids. I know you're shaking your head like that. (laughs) So many. And I was just telling you, my youngest just had her bat mitzvah. She just turned 12, which is quite a milestone for us. That means all my kids are almost adults. Is she the last one? He's the youngest. Yeah. My oldest is 23 and 11 and a half years later. That was insane. That was insane. Anyhow, so my background is I'm a special education teacher. And when I was a young teacher, I was particularly amazed and taken by the kids who we would now diagnose as ADHD. They presented a real challenge to me because they were fascinating and interested in everything. And at recess time, they came alive and I had best time with them. But in the classroom, they absolutely refused to learn. So they really challenged me and I like a good challenge. So I worked very hard to help them flourish in my classroom. And then I met and married my husband, Daniel, who's a, might as well have been one of my students, <laughs> exact same energy. And uh, as we know, ADHD is uh, quite hereditary. And most of my six children were diagnosed with ADHD. So I began my career working with students with ADHD, then moved on to really taking a serious deep dive for my own children. So it became very, very personal. And today I receive people in my private practice, families, couples dealing with ADHD, as well as one of my favorite jobs, which is teaching in college. So I get to meet many, many teachers, the two teachers colleges, and I get to pass that on so that the children with ADHD in those many classrooms are received with respect and care and love and are understood finally. Yeah. Can we go back to when you were teaching and obviously up until then, maybe the diagnosis wasn't as normal or maybe the way of teaching or working with kids with those behaviors wasn't laid out. Maybe, right. There hadn't been a whole bunch of work around it. What was happening then and how did you pick up on it? And obviously you naturally knew how to work with those students, but can you speak to that a little bit? Well, in graduate school, we did learn about ADHD and this was the late 90s. So it was already a well-received diagnosis and not as many kids were taking Ritalin as as there are today. And it was a two-dose regimen. So kids would go to the nurse's office to get their second dose after lunchtime. But actually, I think that the environment in the schools today is much more inhospitable than it was back then. Really? Yes. And and that's something that I find to be very disappointing because back then we were still in the mindset of seeing each child and saying, the kid is struggling. Why? So they were no cookie cutters. It was each child. So when I think back on my students, 
I'm in touch with a couple of them still now, over 20 years later. And I look back at that and I say, well, that one was dealing with some dyslexia as well as some behavior issues. That one's parents was going through a rough divorce. The other one was being bullied. The other one was really, it was a more of a genetic thing. And the minute I met his father, I'm like, I get it. And it's not just boys. I happen to be teaching boys. Boys and girls can equally have ADHD. So I just want to clarify that. But back then we were trained to be curious, to look at the kid and say, what is causing the child to not flourish in my classroom? As the diagnosis has picked up speed and the prevalence of using medication has picked up speed, teachers have kind of gotten the message that when a child's not behaving in their classroom, it's not their job to fix it. The parents have to fix it. It never would have occurred to me back then as a young teacher to call the parent and tell the parent that the child's not behaving. Like, what's a parent to do? That's my job. I'm in the classroom. This is my domain now. Now it's a standard thing for parents to have to fix their child's behavior because the teacher doesn't have to. And what's tragic about that is that, you know, discipline is a real art form. It's something that you have to learn as a teacher. And it's something I struggled with for the first two years I was teaching. And I had to turn to other teachers who were way more experienced than I was and copy them and ask questions. Discipline is gone as an art, as a piece of knowledge that we pass on, because it's not my job to discipline. It's your job to find the right pill to make your kids to sit down and stop bothering the classroom. And I should not have to suffer from one child bothering everybody in my classroom. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize that it had gone that way. I mean, I know what I'm experiencing as a parent, right? But I wasn't a parent 30 years ago. So I don't know that that shift has not been as positive which is alarming, but so much is alarming right now. And so (laughs) can you outline maybe some of the behaviors that you were seeing in the kids that alerted you to it? Yeah. So what I saw was kids that just could not glue their bottom to the chair. That was one. And since I was teaching boys, I saw a lot of aggression with the girls. You're going to see much more either meanness or being more reserved, like not knowing how to read the social map, but For the boys, they were just more aggressive. You know, you tell them to open their math page and and start an assignment and they they couldn't get going. They couldn't put that pencil on the paper and start that first problem and then run with it. They would give up very quickly. They didn't know it right away. Then they'd throw it out. And so there was a lot of movement in the classroom. There was a lot of not getting along at recess. That's why they landed up hanging out with me. And they'd tell me all sorts of stories so that it was great stuff going on in their brains, but they were not relating great with their friends and also follow through getting homework done. And this one more thing, which is a lack of mental flexibility. If there was a change in the schedule that would get them, you know, blowing up, like they, they could not handle that anything out of, of their own expectation. And those were the things I specifically targeted to help them work on. And that last one, the change in the schedule, did that prompt anger or was it anxiousness or what did that one look like? So different kids had different responses. I did see a lot of anger, but there were kids who like, didn't know what to do. Like, where do I go now? What do I do? Where do I put my books? Where, how does this work out? You know, that was a lot of the anxiety there. And some kids just like checked out. You're not messing with my schedule. I, I have nothing to do with this classroom anymore. It's kind of like the cortisol. It's the fight, flight, freeze. So that's in the classroom. And then obviously you have your own children who have 
different levels of ADHD. What did that look like at home? Because obviously it's two different things. And as parents, we don't see them in the classroom. So what does that look like? Well, I've always really enjoyed my kids' energy. I know that, you know, we have a neighbor came by the other day and he was reminiscing with us about how we used to get our kids up really, really early and take them on trips. And, you know, he would be like seeing from his window and it would be like 530 in the morning and my kids would be playing tackle football with their father before we got in the car. So (laughs) you too? My boys are just like that. Yes. The girls, the boys, we all got in on it. Imagine my family being in a lockdown like that was not like we were we were doing CrossFit all over the street. That's us. So in terms of the energy, the reason why it wasn't so challenging is because my husband and I are both energetic and we knew to get our kids out to nature and get them very active, keep them away from screens. And that was very helpful. But in terms of other things like routines, my children had a really hard time with that, waking up in the morning, going to bed at night, getting in the shower, getting out of the shower, you know, all that homework. Woo. That was an issue because they're not great at routines because my kids are very instant gratification. They want everything interesting, fun, now, dangerous, uh, intriguing. That, that's what they're looking for all the time. There's nothing about homework that gets you there. So that's when I really started having to implement programs to help them develop habits. That's what they were really missing because you only develop habits when you do something a bunch of times consistently and that they weren't doing. So at this point, where were you? You were in New York, but now you're in... I'm in Israel now. Actually, when my kids were young, when my kids started grade school, we lived in Moscow in Russia. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that stuff. Yeah, because it's such a strange thing. Yeah, so we were in Russia. So when my daughter started first grade, we were in the oldest, uh, we were in Russia and they didn't quite know what to do with her. They're not very advanced on anything having to do with education. You'd be surprised by that because we all thought that the Russians really know how to educate. I, I was in for a very depressing surprise on that front because I actually taught in Russia as well. But we won't get into that. We're not slamming Russia right now, even though they probably deserve it. So I was actually teaching in the school that my daughter was, was studying in. And I'd come in and she'd be barefoot running up and down the hallway. So she's getting a good sensory input. But the teachers were good with it because she was bright. And when she was in the classroom, she was awesome. So they were so okay with it. And it was smaller classes. So they gave that a lot of support. The minute we moved back to Israel, that was a crash and burn. And that's when I went for her diagnosis, because suddenly I put her into a classroom of 28 students in a much more high pressured school where they were not tolerating the thing that really calmed her down, which was that running around barefoot a little bit, and then going to sit down for 45 minutes. Right. Can we talk about the whole diagnosis thing? Because I think that that's, in terms of the U.S., I feel like there's like a split in terms of some parents want to get the diagnosis. Others are afraid to get the diagnosis. What if the school won't accommodate? What if they kick us out? I've had friends have this happen. Really? Because they say that they'll be able to accommodate and then they can't. So there's this split, right? Like, do I go and get this diagnosis because it will help my child or will it? So can you speak to that and the importance of it and everything involved? Sure. So the diagnostic process, I find disappointing because it's very shallow. You're not getting a lot of information. 
as opposed to like a psychoeducational evaluation, not something that's done by a psychiatrist or a neurologist, but rather by a uh, psychologist that's really digging deep into what's going on. If there's a learning disability, that I think is very valuable. If you have any suspicion that there's something going on, that's of, of course, that's more expensive, but the actual ADHD diagnosis essentially just asks questions with a rating scale about your kid's behavior. So that's just observable behaviors. I observe them, you observe them, we all see them. So we're not really adding anything. So all we're doing is getting a doctor's stamp of approval that I see symptoms, which the doctor is not necessarily going to see in the 20 minute visit. So in general, the diagnosis doesn't give me information. And I'm always curious when people say the doctor finally gave me this diagnosis and now everything makes sense. Like, did you not know that you had trouble sitting? Like we know it. My kids know it. It was my daughter's body double the other night. She was cleaning her room and she has trouble like getting it done. And she just doesn't need me to help her. She just wants a human in the room. And I'm like, there, here I am. Let's talk. You know that you're struggling. You know that your sister can clean the room and you would like to have someone in the room with you. to clean. I don't understand the mystery that's resolved. But in terms of diagnosis, there's really only two values to diagnosis. One is if you need accommodation and therefore you don't get any kind of accommodation if you don't have a diagnosis. And if a parent needs that, then I say, get your diagnosis so that you can get as many services as possible. And the public school system does offer services for ADHD. It offers more for ADHD plus learning disabilities, spectrum. Wow, you're really doing great. So therefore, if you need that, the accommodations, go for it. The other reason is for medication because you can't get any kind of medication without a diagnosis. Other than that, if you don't feel your child is either going to qualify or get the accommodations and you're not looking to medicate right now, then you're just looking at a healthy child who's struggling with something and you try to figure out how do I help this child with help? You try to figure out what can I do to help the child who's struggling? It's not like something took over the child's brain and now there's this ADHD monster in there. It's a child who's struggling with a bunch of different symptoms that that can be managed and even overcome. I'm curious, just going back to your daughter needing you in the room to clean. Why is that? They like companionship. They like the energy of the other person. Let's say someone's trying to get their house in order. Invite a friend over to you anyway, wanted to catch up with a friend. Let the friend relax with a coffee and you get your stuff and you'll get it done. The minute I walked into my daughter's room, she just started going. And people with ADHD have, in general, have more energy, not always, but in general, they have more energy. So you watch them work and it's fabulous. They're so capable. But to get that push, and I found that also with my students, if I just stopped by their desk and kind of hung out for a little bit or put my hand on the kid's shoulder, then they started and then it got rolling. They need that. It was part of the instant gratification, getting feedback makes them feel good. And also being approved of, I'm doing a great job. And when I do it myself, okay, it's not so exciting. But when the teacher or the mother or the friend is, is with me in this process, I feel successful. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, just in general, as humans, we love to have that type of feedback and validation. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so you're in Israel. You're not finding that things are going as well as they were in Moscow. 
So what was your next step there? This was your first child that you realized. Yeah, this is my oldest. And the second one never was officially diagnosed. And from then on, one after the next, we're, we're all pretty much diagnosed. And it's interesting because the, the second one who's not officially diagnosed is a combat soldier. And he's in his element. He's doing great. And that's actually something that's great. A lot of exercise, a lot of discipline. These guys really flourish. We're super proud of him, of course, as well. And so what happens is we're back in Israel and I see that the only real available program essentially is Medicaid and take care of your child so your child does not bother the people in the classroom. And it had never occurred to me that this amazing kid was a bother to anybody. So it was a, there was a lot of blaming, a, a lot of bullying, very little accommodation. I advocate for parents. I go into uh, school meetings and I had just this week sat with the same teacher that my daughter had had. It was, I went back to the same, but advocating for a client instead of my own child. They have not gotten better. They're stuck exactly where they were like 15 years ago. It's, it's disappointing in every way, but they don't accommodate these kind of kids. And, and that's just the way it is. So I had to really start figuring out, okay, what's missing here? And send in the programs and initiate meetings with the teacher and say, okay, these are the things, this is the kind of communication, this is the sort of chart that would help her. This is the kind of exercise she might need. And some were able to do that. And then other teachers just looked me straight in the eye and said, that is not a thing that I'm willing to do. And I'm like, do you do education? Like, (laughs) where are we going with this? But we got her through elementary school and she is gifted. So that was helpful. And now she's in university, which is wonderful. But high school, she, she came alive because they started appreciating her and she started being able to choose things that were interesting to her, which is super important for these kids to be able to be focused on what they love. So it sounds like you, and this is where the book probably started to come alive in your head, but you started to come up with a framework almost for how to support and help kids with ADHD. Exactly. That's what happened. I saw that they had the missing habits. That was my first aha moment. Like this is not a kid who's incapable. This is a kid who's just not developing habits properly. And then I saw that they are much more emotionally sensitive in both ways, sensitive to others, noticing others' feelings and also taking things very hard. So I had to look for the best way for this kind of child to respond to that. So slowly but surely, I I did not create all of my programs. I just started reading and just dragging information from everywhere in order to help my kids. And that's how the book started taking shape. Right. So can you give a couple examples of habits and what that might look like in terms of supporting someone with ADHD? And then I really want to dive into the emotional piece because we didn't talk about that last time. And now I'm curious. Okay. In terms of the habits... What we need to do is choose one routine that we're going to work on. We get very frustrated with our kids because they're off on everything. They're not getting up. They're also not doing homework. They're not going to bed. And my God, they've lost their toothbrush again. So we're so frustrated. We want everything right, but that's impossible. No one can fix everything at, at one time. I see you're very fit. So you obviously do exercise. You work out. Yeah. People who work out are very insulted when you say they do exercise. But the point is like, if you are coaching someone else who is out of shape, 
to get fit, you wouldn't say work from morning till night. And you wouldn't say do an hour and a half routine, even though by the looks of it, you probably could do that because they're missing habits. They will fall apart. So here the same way I start with one routine. So I would work with a kid on the routine of getting up in the morning. So I would divide that into four parts and reward each segment of it because these kids are, we said black and white, inflexible. They're all or nothing. So if they don't get part of the morning, right, they wake up a little bit too late. It all goes in the garbage. Forget it. I'm not getting out of bed. So therefore I want to have that as just one segment, but one second, you got up late, you still can get dressed and you're going to get points for that and you'll succeed. So we divide that up. We make the prize very attractive to the kid. And this is where teachers and parents usually mess up. And this is where it took me a while to understand as well, is that these kids need to have, because they're instant gratification, they need to have the option of getting a prize every day. So we would be like, okay, at the end of the week, after 50 points, and no, we can't do that. What I do is I set up a menu of all sorts of different prizes they can get, and I try to make them experiential so they remember them. We always remember experiences better than receiving an item. So, you know, making something in the kitchen or going out with a parent for a special event or choosing dinner tomorrow night or having a sleepover, things like that, that are experiential. And now these are things that you might give them as well for free, and that's fine. But we want to add to it so they can get more of whatever it is. You could, of course, reward with money or with a chocolate bar. That's fine. But I prefer it be experiential. And then the kid has the option to get a prize, which keeps the child engaged and interested. The main reward here is the parent's feedback. As they're going through the morning, we have to be the one to be cheering them on the whole time. That's great. You got up on time. Look at that beautiful smile on your face. The whole house is energetic because of you. This is fantastic. Really in a very deep, loving, caring way, we need to be giving tremendous feedback because that's the instant gratification. The points and the prizes are in addition to that. And we do have to maintain this for at least a month because that's what takes to create a habit. So a warning to moms specifically is you have to make the program according to your ability and not your children's needs. Because if you make this big, elegant program and you can't keep up with it, forget it. If you can just do one thing in the morning, just have them get up on time and that's what you can handle and you could do it with a point and with a huge compliment and stick with it every day, you're a grand success. I love it. I'm thinking about my child again. I'm curious on the flip side, when it comes to discipline, what's the appropriate way to discipline someone with ADHD? Because this is where I'm getting hung up, I think. Right. I was actually just now before our conversation, I was recording that chapter in my book for the audio book, which hopefully will be coming out in the next few months. Anyhow. So yeah, so I'm just, that's very fresh in my mind right now. So the discipline is more important for kids with ADHD than anyone else, because whereas they are the most discipline resistant, they also need it more than anyone because they're not good on boundaries and they're asking for boundaries. And the more we back off and let them figure things out, the more wild they get because they want us to kind of hold on to them. So we make a lot of mistakes with discipline, which uh, you and I as mothers both know. We all first mess up, we yell, we punish, we threaten, we all that stuff, or we disengage and let our children run us over. 
And Jordan Peterson gives us a big warning there. Don't let your children do things that'll make you want to take revenge on them because you think you could hold on to it and you think you could just let it go, but you can't. You'll end up being nasty a different time, right? Isn't that true? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's some fantastic wisdom from, from Dr. Peterson. But my system, which is based on the work of Dr. Alan Kasdan, is that I work on a, on a system that's what I call the cookie punishment, which means that let's say you were to um, mouth off at a friend and uh, you feel bad about it. You were in like a nasty mood and, and you want to apologize. So of course you can just call and apologize in the WhatsApp, whatever it is. But the better way to apologize would be to like bake your friend something or like, like a little gift, something small. And that gift is not for your friends. That gift is 100% for you because now you feel better. Okay, we're even, I'm a good person. We love each other. Everything's all right. But the action of doing something really frees you. And the two messages that we want to give our children is number one, we believe that they can do better than they're doing now. And when we don't punish them, we're saying, we don't believe you can do better. This is the best you can do. So I'm going to leave you alone because I wouldn't want to torture you. But if I say you need to stop and change your behavior now, I'm saying, I know you can do it. So that's number one. And number two is I want to give you the opportunity now to bake me cookies. In other words, I want to let you, since you did something that kind of reduced the happiness or whatever is going on in our home, you now have the opportunity to do something in order to bring that back. And it's an opportunity for a child. So I would have a child clean something up, fold some laundry, wash a window, something like something physical that they can do. A a lot of times the kids will be like, no way, I'm not doing that. And especially if like you told them to clean their room, they didn't clean their room. And now you're like, okay, you didn't clean your room, empty the dishwasher. So that doesn't work. But uh, the second option of punishment is to take away either a privilege or an item from the child for a short amount of time. The power of the, of the punishment is in its immediacy and consistency, not in the size of it. It doesn't have to be painful. So your child, you know, smacked your other child in the car. So whenever you get to your destination, the child will sit next to you on the bench for, we had that going to the beach. Uh, you know, I, I actually include that in the book. So I'm making believe that it's happening to a different family, but it's actually my family. So now you know the truth. So I just sat with my daughter on the sand on the beach for 15 minutes. And then she got to go in the water like her siblings. But it was like, I kind of took that away from her. And what happens with children when we really do tell them we believe they can do better is that they feel safe. They are so loving because they feel like, ah, someone's got my back. So this system obviously requires a lot more information. I'm kind of giving it to you quickly, but I have a long chapter on it. I got to read the book. You got to read the book on this one. I'm happy to, to give it all for free, but I know for in terms of time, I want to make sure that you get to all your questions, but it's very important and it's not something that we can skip if we want to raise healthy children. Yeah. I'm still trying to get that whole part right. And I'm close. Like that's very much what I do, but you know, you lose your patience and then you just want to, like, everything gets derailed. You're just over it. Wait. So let me add something to that with the patience, because we were just talking about the cortisol before where like you change a kid's schedule and then the kid gets angry or frustrated, whatever those responses. 
when our children misbehave, it's always at high stress moments or they trigger us to go into high stress moments, which means that our frontal lobe checks out and we're going to react poorly. But the thing is that if we know in advance that that's the mechanism, then we can prepare ourselves. And that's why I tell parents to prepare a punishment treasure chest, which essentially is here. I'm going to give you an example. Imagine you certainly should not go on a diet, but a person was uh, wanting to lose a couple of pounds after the holidays. So they say, okay, they're very uh, excited about this diet. In the morning, they eat their healthy breakfast and then out the door. When they come back home in the afternoon, they're coming in with the groceries, with the kids, and it's hot and they're sweaty and they're cranky from a long day. And then there's a cake on the counter and no more apples. So what are the chances you're not going to eat the cake? Zero. But let's say in the morning, since you know you're not going to be able to withstand this, you cut yourself a beautiful salad. And now when you come home, is the cake still there and your frontal lobe is like not working, but you do remember that there's a wonderful salad waiting for you in the fridge. You might pass the test now. So if you have like a list of cookie punishments and then you have a list of punishments where you're really taking matters out of the child's hand and kind of having to assert yourself and you know that it's a quick punishment and something you could handle, then you will have much better chance of not losing yourself there. I love that. Instead of like just flying by the seat of your pants when you're not in a good place. Exactly. Okay. Definitely a reason to read the book. Just right there. All of that. Okay. You talked about the habits and you gave a great example of that and what that does for the child and for the parent. Obviously, this is kind of a dual thing. Let's talk about the emotional piece because I hadn't thought about that. Which part did you not think about? I didn't realize that kids with ADHD and adults probably too are more sensitive to others and about things happening to themselves. Right. Yeah. So that's definitely... Just about have never met a person with ADHD symptoms that did not have this element to them. And it's always kind of curious to me when I'll have a teacher say, no, it's not ADHD. It's, it's an emotional dysregulation. I'm like, you're kind of describing the same thing there. And it requires the same kind of intervention. So the intervention I really love is something that I've taken from Dr. Ross Green in The Explosive Child. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Highly recommended. I actually have a full chapter on that. Instead of the full book of Ross Green, I was actually in contact with him and he's a gentleman and an excellent psychologist. Anyway, what he's talking about is helping a child with this emotional dysregulation because what happens many times is that, for example, we want a child to behave in a certain way. The child is either tactless or you know, emotionally way too explosive. Why are they being so explosive? Because they are very sensitive to what's going on around them, but it's overload for them because they're absorbing and and retaining everything. And by the way, I'm just going to add one interesting thing here that I discovered later on in my journey. That's why a lot of kids with ADHD have trouble falling asleep at night. It's not sleep apnea in a lot of cases. It's because they're in overload and they lay down in bed finally after stopping this constant movement, they lay down And then everything comes to the surface and they they can't work it out. So they're racing in their brains. So a lot of times the kids, whereas they they might be great talkers, 
when it comes to really understanding what they experience, they have a hard time. And they're again, black and white. She hates me. Uh, you know, that very extreme kind of things. It's, it's love or hate and it's, and it's angry or happy. This is no shades of gray there. So those are things that really we need to help a child tease out. And a lot of times we look at the kid and say, just respond normally. What is all of this tantruming? Why are you crying in the supermarket? It's a candy. Pull yourself together. But they, they're not able to because we didn't help them break it down and really understand what the trigger was, what emotional skill they were missing, and how they themselves could then de-escalate and calm themselves down. When I see parents like demanding that the child just calm down, is you stop that, calm down. And I'm thinking like, that's like telling a kid to speak French. Like, mm, I don't know how to speak French. I don't have that. I don't, I don't have it. And why does this kid not have it? I think that that's their emotional makeup. I also think that because they're jumping from thing to thing, they're not really working through the emotional kinks that kids usually work through as they go through kindergarten and grade school, that they get pushed back and then they learn this is correct. This is not correct. But these kids are more all over the place, less focused. So they're not really working that out. So Ross Green really leads us through a very, very good program where we're first empathizing with the child and really identifying and understanding the emotion that the child's dealing with. A lot of times the child is like a justice warrior, you know, if something is not equal or fair, but we don't know that until we have that conversation with them and we start tying things together with them. So it's a real curiosity journey. We don't come into it saying, I know what's wrong with you. And now I'm going to tell you it's going through, well, what about this situation that was really hard for you? And what were you feeling then a lot of times? And and again, I, I work this out with the parents to help them get the skill of teasing it out because we're not psychologists, we're moms and dads. So I give the parents the tools to ask the questions a certain way, be patient and tell your own personal stories. There are things we can do to get the child to be less shameful and to be able to share what they're really feeling. And then we go ahead and share what's bothering us, which is very important because our ADHD kids are a little bit egocentric. They're not really noticing what's going on around them when they have a need. And therefore they need to hear from me when you behave that way, it's difficult for our family or it's difficult for a specific reason, not because it gives me a headache, but rather because it's against the rules of our home. And those rules are to help you be a good person. So that kind of thing. And then together we find an emotional solution that answers both of our problems. So there's all sorts of different solution options and different kids will go with different things. One of my daughters really loved having like a, a code word. Anytime I was sitting to do homework with another kid and with six of them, and at, at one point, like four of them in elementary school together. So I had to sit with all of them in the evening. The minute I would sit with one of the kids, she would either start bothering that child or she would like insist on sitting on my lap suddenly. Suddenly she was just madly in love with me. And after a few times of like either punishing her or pushing her away or yelling, I'm saying one second, she's having an emotional stress here. What's going on for her? So when I finally was able to see that and I had this conversation with her, we were able to tease out that she was really feeling very jealous. And that's a hard thing for a kid to admit. But when she was able to admit it, she felt so freed 
that she's like, yeah, I'm having trouble with you giving attention to other people. Now, can I resolve that by saying, okay, from now on, I'm just giving attention to you? Obviously not. My problem is that we have other children and you tend to bother them and you could hit them. And that's a big problem. And we need to be able to share the attention, but what can we do? In the end, our solution was that she would come over to me and say, I'm really feeling like I need attention, which was, we solved half the problem because she was able to identify her discomfort. And then I was able to say to her, first of all, huge compliment. That was so mature and well thought out. All the compliments she deserved for that. And then I was able to say, okay, no problem, because in 15 minutes, I'm going to be done with this and we're going to make dinner together. So then she didn't have to guess and be in a panic. And it worked beautifully. Oh my God, I love this. Now I'm 100% certain that my oldest falls into this category. I have a question, like a personal question that maybe this will help others. I registered them for camp, like for a few days throughout the summer every week, just so I can work. You don't have to justify registering them for camp, by the way. I know. <laughs> camp is, there's no structure. There, there's like multiple, lots of things happening. And the first day afterwards, he was really upset, right? But couldn't communicate why. And my youngest like loves chaos. And so had no problem with it, right? It's like a sports camp. They can run around and do whatever. So the morning before the next day we were going, my oldest started crying and he was visibly upset. And I teased out of him what was going on. And he said that he was uncomfortable, but he couldn't really articulate why. And then later that day, it dawned on me, oh my gosh, this kid needs structure. All of this is making him anxious, right? He's got a lot of anxiety. He needs to know like everything that's happening in a day to feel good. And so he's having a hard time with it. Is there something that would help with that? Or is it just not the right format? It might not be the right format for him, but we wouldn't discount it right away because there are different solutions like having, you know, one of the counselors being more on with him. That's a possibility. But before we would find the solution, I would want to include, if it was my child, I'd want to include my child to really explain what is his experience and really so that he understands so that he can ask for the right kind of help. And then at that point, once he and you really understand what's going on for him, and you could say what your problem is that you see that he is a child who needs structure and you feel like maybe this is not the right setting that you've sent him to. I think that's comforting for a child to know that you're seeing him and that you're really thinking about his personal needs. So at that point, you would start working with him on solutions. And one of the solutions can be that he's able to turn to the counselor and say, if there is an adult counselor that's being responsible at all, it doesn't seem like from your description that that really exists. But if there is something that he could say that he's feeling chaotic or that he needs to kind of know what the schedule is, that that's something. Or you could ask him if, if maybe it would help if you went into the camp for a little while and saw what the schedule is. And then you can tell him in the morning before he goes that this is going to be the schedule for the day or for the week so that he can have it. I don't know if he has a phone, but if you could have a picture of it, I hope he doesn't have a phone. I don't know how old he is. No. <laughs> Excellent. Go you. 
but at least you can copy that so that he has it at home. And besides for that, I really enjoy hiring young teenagers to help me out with all sorts of things, tutoring, going out to the to park with my kids. So this might be an opportunity for a teenager in the camp to kind of be with him, but try to tease out what are the things that are the most challenging for him? Is it not knowing where they're going next? Is it that he doesn't know the rules of the game? Is it that he doesn't, he can't figure out the campus of the camp? So try to really figure it out so that you can troubleshoot with him and that he's really very much part of that journey. Yeah. One of the things I know is getting to him is behavior of some of the other kids. Like, again, he's a, you said a justice warrior or something like he's a very rule follower. I'm borrowing from the leftist justice warriors who are out there fighting Roe versus Wade being overturned, but I'm talking about it in the very innocent little child sense of they like justice. Yeah. But he, you know, recognizes that that is a behavior that he, you know, and so it makes him uncomfortable. I think there's a lot of things, but that's super helpful. And hopefully others can hear this conversation and, and recognize like how you go through that process and have that conversation and come up with solutions. I think that's critical. Yeah. And for us as parents, it's, it's hard for us to not assume what's going on with our kids because we know them so well. But if we can really, really listen, they'll tell us what's bothering them. They want to tell us they don't have the words so well. So we have to help them with that. But we have to be curious and they do surprise us. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's talk about what's next for you. You share about the book. I feel like you're working on another book, right? And you have some programs. So I know that folks are going to want to follow you and see what's going on. So can you share that? Okay, so the first book, Hyperhealing, has been out for just over a year now. We're rocking it on, on Amazon. I actually hit number one a couple of weeks ago in my category. So that was fun. And it's hard to hang on to that number one spot, but we got there. We touched it. It's like when, you know, you're running on the boardwalk, you, you kind of like have to touch the, the end of the boardwalk before you go back. So we touched it and I'm getting some nice feedback there, which I'm very grateful for. And my second book is coming out in uh, September. I think the 7th of September. That was my first love. It was really just finding out what was the story with ADHD? Where does this diagnosis come from? What's the medical and scientific basis of it? The history of it? And then I really go into a deep analysis of the medication, of each type of medication. What does it do for you? What does it not do for you? So really the reason I put this out, it's going to be controversial. People are going to get upset because I do go against the grain. None of it is my own opinions. It's all based on mainstream science, 100%. And it's the millions of citations. It's all stuff that you're going to find in the New York Times and the Washington Post and real well-done science. So the reason I did it was because I feel like parents do not have informed consent when it comes to their kids' intervention program. So the first book really gives the parents an alternative program and a complete program from beginning to end. So you really know what to do with screens and diet and sleep and exercise and the behavior stuff and emotional. It's a really a full program, very dense. I've been, uh, it's been described as very dense. But then the second is for the parents who need to know, and that was me. I needed to know what was going on so I could make proper decisions. Some parents need that. Some parents don't, but it's a fun book. It's interesting. It gets you angry. It gets you excited and gives you all the information that you need. And I'm super excited about it. 
It's called Hyper Healing, Show Me the Science. It's a continuation of what I had already written and it's fun. Yeah, I, we need to talk when that comes out. With pleasure. I remember you once in a while do some sort of online program, right? So I just completed a free online training, a three-part training. I'm actually going to be doing another three-part training specifically for a group of psychologists, teachers, doctors in Kenya in the next couple of weeks, which will, I think will be very culturally interesting for both me and them. So I'm looking forward to that. Every once in a while, I put out a free online training, and that's mainly for people who want to be group leaders because I, I wrote the book so that parents can read it together. And if you have one leader who could help you get through it, who's not necessarily a leader amongst peers, essentially. So that structure really helps parents get the support they need from each other. But with one person as your point person, assigning homework and and getting you to the next topic, that was always my vision. That's like having the book as not something you sit and read at home, but rather something you do with your girlfriends and the other moms and dads in the neighborhood and teachers if they want to join that's a training for group leaders. And then I have a deep dive training, which is for parents. That's a paid training that really walks parents through my program and helps them really visualize how to do it with their own children. And people are then welcome to be in touch with me throughout the program and get personal advice for their own kids. Perfect. I love it. I'm going to provide the link in the show notes. Where can everybody find you? Okay, so you could find me through my website. And actually, right now, I am giving away on my website to people who register the first chapter of my book and all of the cheat sheets. I have every single chapter at the end of the chapter because I'm writing for parents who probably have ADHD themselves. So, Cliff Notes essentially at the end of each chapter. So, the Cliff Notes plus the first chapter are available on my website, which is hyperhealing.org. And on Instagram is the other best way to get in touch with me, which is hyperhealing.adhd. Or you can look me up by my name, Abigail Gimpel, on any one of those platforms. It'll probably come up. Love it, Abigail. I am so thrilled to have you. This has been very educational, and I'm sure our listeners will agree. So thank you so much for bringing your wisdom. Thanks so much for having me again. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Okay, that was good, right? I mean, you can't not learn something during that conversation. Thank you, Abigail, for bringing your wisdom. As I said, I so much appreciate this conversation and you sharing so many valuable pieces of information about ADHD and some peeks at what can happen when we implement some of the tools and suggestions you shared. I'm definitely getting the book. I hope you are too. If you enjoyed this episode, take a screenshot, tag me in it, or send me a DM and let me know if it was helpful. I love hearing from you all. All right. I will talk to you soon. Bye. 